reading can be found on page four of the Pew Bibles. It is Genesis chapter two. Beginning at verse 4 and continuing to verse 15. So Genesis 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, And no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs through the east of Ashur, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Thank you, Val, for reading all those Middle Eastern studies you did have helped you with your pronunciation. It was brilliant. Um, Let's keep Genesis 2 open, and uh, I'll give an advert before I um, pray. Just to say we've got copies of Alistair Payne's book, The First Chapters of Everything, in for you to pick up and help. He's written in the last few years on Genesis 1 to 4, and I thought it's a useful accompaniment to our series in the morning services. So that's available on the bookstall here or over in the North Building if you'd like to pick up one of those. Now let's pray with those um, verses of the Bible open before us. And we thank you, Father, that you're a God who reveals yourself to us and reveals... um, truths about our world and our existence that we could not know or would suppress at any rate. Um, We thank you for making yourself known. We thank you for giving us the path to life. And we pray, gracious God, that you would speak to us afresh through your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Title for today's sermon Um, It's Gardener's World, but I wanted to change it almost to What a Wonderful World. 
lots of people here will obviously know the, the famous song by Louis Armstrong. Although I suppose I should admit, and this tags my age, that for some of us it was almost ruined if you saw the film Good Morning Vietnam because against the soundtrack of Louis Armstrong crooning, uh, you see the footage of napalm torching villages, children running screaming, peace protests being battened, charged by the police and so on. And there he is singing skies of blue, clouds of white as the choppers fly in. Well, try and forget, if you've got those images in your mind, try and forget those pictures, because the title of the song is an apt description of the world we see in Genesis chapter 2, before sin and suffering made its entry into human existence. And surely this is a portrait which answers to a longing that we all have, deep within, for paradise. And the Bible tells us, unmistakably, that we will have that dream only through being rightly related to our maker, to God. Which I suppose I should say is right at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Christianity is not what you do, but who you know. A close, personal relationship with the God of the universe. We were made by God to know and love God. So what, according to Genesis 2, are the foundational ingredients of God and humanity in a right relationship with each other? Well, let's look first at the God's creation of man. God's creation of man. And I'm doing, I think, what the Bible does and using that word man generically. So don't um, mishear me and think I'm forgetting half the population of the planet. God's creation of man generically. We focus on that by looking at verse 7, if I can focus on that verse. Then the Lord God formed the man, it says, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. In chapter 1, it is as if we had a a wide-angle lens surveying the whole of creation with that climax of man and woman being made in God's image, to be God's deputies in the world. In this passage, really from chapter 2, verse 4 onwards, we zoom in to a slightly different approach to focus particularly on man in a specific geographical location, Eden. So this is a a complementary picture of the work of creation alongside Genesis 1, viewing it from a slightly different vantage point. And to begin with, I suppose it's really the flip side of what humanity's role of ruling the world is that is stressed. Because we learn here that the world was, to a degree, incomplete and inhospitable before God made Adam, which I think seems to be the point of verses 5 and 6, which have provoked a lot of discussion. I'm not going to get too stuck in them tells us that there were no fields with cultivated shrubs and plants in them at this stage because there was no man to work the ground and God hadn't sent the rain. It's actually an amazing pointer, if you think about it, to God's humility. He could have achieved the cultivation of the earth on his own. Instead, he sends the rain and man tills the earth. And it is with that exalted position over the world that God made humanity. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. So with that simple sentence, our writer captures the paradox of human nature. 
you and I are dust of the ground and breath of God. Like the animals, man was formed from the ground, so we've got the same compounds and elements as them in our physical makeup, water, lime, magnesium, phosphorus, sulfur, iron, so on. But unlike the animal creation, God made man in this intimate, close contact way, breathing his life directly into man, face to face. Man was made from dust, and when sin and death entered the world, to dust he would return. But there was this extra dimension, God's breath. And that puts you and me in a completely different class to the rest of creation. There's a tendency, I think, to blur the distinction between humankind and the animal kingdom, as if we were just top-of-the-range apes and nothing more. That means we either tend to value animals too highly, so rhinos and whales are on a level with humanity in status and importance, or we value mankind too little, which take them down to the level of a flea or a rat. Um, witness the attitude that sometimes surfaces to unborn kids or the elderly. But surely to acknowledge God's creation of man must affect how we view ourselves. It means that human life is very valuable. I was trying to get my head around this a bit. The scientific advances that have been unlocked by Crick and Watson when they cracked the existence of DNA. People that know more about this than I do would tell you they've been extraordinary, those advances. But all the different advances, all the stem cell technology, all the lab-grown body parts uh, as they come off the shelves in due course, there's still an extra dimension that we can't create, surely. And we've got to retain this exalted view of ourselves as created personally by God with all the significance that gives to us. As I say, it affects the way we think about ourselves. So many of the Saturday newspaper supplements have a bit of an agenda to make us feel dissatisfied with ourselves. Um, I get depressed reading all those little Coloured supplements, you know the headlines. Keep it off, how not to be fat at 30. 20 essentials to dressing like a model, fashion with passion. All sort of pushing image at me, as if how I look is what gives me significance. Whereas the Bible says that what I am gives me significance. I'm not simply a conveniently arranged collection of atoms. I'm not even an inconveniently arranged collection of atoms. I need to say to myself, as I regularly do, I am a finely tuned instrument made personally by Almighty God. And obviously it affects how I think about God. If he formed man, then obviously God is the rightful Lord of the man he formed. We owe life and breath and everything else to God. Therefore, for us to dispute his right to control our lives is out of place, even ludicrous. Well, let me move on to a second point. God's creation of man, God's commission to man. He's formed from the ground to work the ground. And the scene of his work is described in verses 8 to 10. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, And there he put the man he'd formed. 
The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters and so on. Uh, We live in a green and pleasant land. Nice hints of that in Joan's prayers earlier. Actually, to a reader from the dry and dusty Middle East, that little portrait there would have sounded absolutely ravishing. It was love that caused God to make a creature with whom to enjoy a relationship. And now it's his love that causes God to put the man not in a desert, not in a jungle, but in a beautiful garden, a park with lush trees and, it seems, lavish water features. It's a garden that meets all humanity's needs, his aesthetic needs. God is the great artist, and the trees are beautiful to look at, pleasing to the eye. It meets his physical needs. They're good for food. And we'll discover more his spiritual needs with the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Uh, Life at its best, life lived in harmony with God, provided for. And as if that's not enough, verses 11 to 14 give us just a little hint of a world outside the garden that's waiting to be explored, a world that's rich and full of resources, gold and onyx and so on. So everything laid on for Adam to explore and enjoy. You see how generous God is. He intends us to enjoy all the innocent pleasures of his world. He's not a spoil sport. He gives us all things richly to enjoy. And I want to enter a little protest against any view of God as a sort of killjoy figure. The Bible says that he created all good things to be received with thanksgiving. So just to make a mental note of that, don't confuse um, religion, as sometimes happen, with, uh, well, sorry, religion perverts what God has done and tends to downgrade creation in a way that's thoroughly unbiblical and unhelpful. But, you know, pleasure is not the same as leisure. There's enjoyment, yes, but also employment. Verse 15, I think we had to have this verse read as well. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, there's more to say about this next week, but the importance of it is that it tells us that work was always part of God's plan for man. It's not something that only arose after the fall, which we might think sometimes on a Monday morning. God always intended for man and him to work as partners in their rule over the world. I like the story of the Cockney gardener who was showing a clergyman the beauty of his garden with all its borders in full bloom. And the clergyman was impressed and broke out in spontaneous praise of God. Actually, the gardener wasn't exactly happy that God should get all the credit. You should have seen this here garden when God added all to himself, he said. Which is absolutely right. Without a human gardener, any plot goes quickly to rack and ruin. I think we often stress God's part in the work of caring for his world. Think of the harvest hymn, we plough the fields and scatter the good seed on the land, but it is fed and watered by God's almighty hand. Right, 
Well, a preacher rewrote that verse, putting the emphasis just as truthfully on our activity. God plants the lovely garden and gives the fertile soil, but it is kept and nurtured by man's resourceful toil. And to say that is not pride, it's simply a fact. Yes, God provides soil, seed, sun, showers, but we must do the plowing, sowing, and reaping. Man was made as a worker. And I hope it's not wrong to say this. It means that work is at least a part, a facet of our humanity. And we can't limit that only to paid work, of course, or what's recognized as employment. There are many forms of work which will never be acknowledged by the tax office or social services as work. But not to be involved in some way in that creation mandate to fill the earth and subdue it will, in a measure, be a lessening of what I was made to be as a human being. And it's striking, too, that that word for working the ground in verse 15 is actually the same root as the word for worship. I think that reinforces the lofty view of work here. As always in the Bible, our work is our worship, because all of life is to be given over to God's glory. We don't come to church to worship God. Actually, to say that is a bit like saying we come to church to breathe. You can't confine breathing to the short time we're together once on a Sunday morning. It will seriously damage your health if you try to do that. I very much hope we do breathe when we're in church. And I hope you will worship God on a Sunday morning in church. But of course, we're to worship him on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday as well, even if we're officially retired. In fact, any work we can't do for him to honor and please him isn't really worthy of the name work. It's actually a denial of this work worship commission that God gave to humanity. Conversely, what a buzz we get when work is done for him and under his rule. That's no surprise. It's, It's how the world was set up to run, according to Genesis 2. Now, there's much, much more to come, I know, more about the relationship between God and the human race in the command which follows and in uh, everything else thereafter. But I hope we've seen enough to remind us of what a wonderful world it is we live in. Even after the fall, there is plenty to rejoice in. When we remember, as we will at communion in a moment, that Jesus Christ came into our world, broken and ruined as it now is, to rescue us and to restore creation, then echo that song. What a wonderful world and what a wonderful saviour he is too. Let's pray. We pray you would restore to us, Heavenly Father, a right view of ourselves, a right view of the purpose of our existence, to serve and honor you, and therefore a right view of yourself as well as the great and awesome, loving creator that you are. We thank you for the value you put on us 
by creation and supremely by redemption in sending Jesus as a human being to live and die for us. And we praise you this morning for him. How we love him, Heavenly Father. We thank you for Jesus Christ and for all you have done for us and won for us in him. Amen.